This is the European Tour's Life on Tour podcast, presented by Hilton. Hello there and welcome to Life on Tour uh, with me, Andrew Cotter, presented by Hilton. It is a European Tour podcast where we get the chance to speak to some of the great and good of golf. We are here in the rather fine, and that is underselling it, rather fine Waldorf Astoria ahead of the DP World Tour Championship, the season-ending finale of the European Tour. Uh, so this is a rather special season-ending finale for Life on Tour, this podcast. Um, and some of you who are listening on the podcast, regular subscribers, we love you for doing so. You may be driving through the, the drizzly rain into Rotherham or some such place, but uh, you should be aware that I have a live audience in front of me, many eyes watching me, so I can only prove this by uh, demanding a small round of applause from our live audience here. Oh, you guys. Thank you very much indeed. That was a shameless attempt to get some applause. But anyway, what happens is usually on Life on Tour, we speak to, as I said, the great and good of the European Tour. We have had, among others, uh, players Justin Rose and Luke Donald, uh, Martin Keimer, Eddie Peppel, Thomas Bjorn, uh, many, many more who you can listen to if you want to go back into the back catalogue uh, on Apples or Acast. Subscribe to it. Enjoy some fascinating chats in there. This evening we're going to be speaking to five people, though. Um, I should tease who they are. I'm just going to tease you. I won't give away the names. Uh, one of them, their name rhymes with Bancesco Tolinari. So I'm going to say no more than that. Again, just a reminder before we start officially, you can listen to the whole of the series, Series 1 of Life on Tour, a binge listen. Subscribe and listen on Acast and Apple Podcasts. So we will crack on, and we're starting, dare I say, at the very top. Our first guest is the boss, so everyone look busy. Please welcome the Chief Executive of the European Tour, Keith Pelly. Thank you. Hello, good evening. Hey, how are good you? I'm very well, Keith. How, how the devil are you? Well, the cushion's falling down. I'm sitting up quite high now. How does this work here? Um, All right. I know I saw you the other day on your way to the golf course to play in the Pro-Am. How did you play? Uh, how did I play? Um, you know, I, I got dehydrated for a little bit. The excuse is starting. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't putt very well, and they weren't my clubs. Okay. But other than that, I played great. Okay. Which pro <laughs> had the pleasure of your company? Who are you playing? Andy Sullivan. Andy Sullivan. Andy Sullivan. And he birdied four of the last five holes. And I'm not saying that we had a wager on, but I just didn't think that would happen. And I ended up having to give him some Durham's. Okay. We will get, we will get all the truth from, from Andy later on. But anyway, listen, give us a, a, a sort of look ahead to this week, because it is... We're here in this spectacular setting, but the whole sort of feel of, of Dubai and the yeah. Tour Championship is kind of spectacular, and it does, it does look set to be a great week. Oh, well, it's fantastic. The weather is great. The, uh, the tournament is celebrating its 10th anniversary, and it keeps growing year after year. DP World are terrific partners who believe in, in the growth of our game and believe in, this, in creating this tournament to be very special. Uh, it's pretty exciting to get underway tomorrow, and we're... Uh, we're, we always we always love uh, playing in Dubai, and we play here a couple times a, a year at the beginning of the year, and then at the end of the year. And and uh, this one is uh, is definitely special. Now you know what we do in life on tour, and I'm sure you do know. I'm sure you're a loyal listener. Is that we do delve slightly deeper into the background of our uh, our star names. So I do, I do just before we talk about various matters, I want to get a bit on your background because that's what three years now you've been chief executive, but you are Canadian. I am Canadian from the thriving metropolis 
of Toronto. Yeah. And uh, I, I came over here with my uh, my charming bride and my two children, Jason and Hope, some three years ago, and we wanted to go on an adventure. And we're on one. There's no question. We've uh, obviously the European tour travels all around the world. It is more of a world tour than than a European tour, playing in in uh, 30 countries. And I think I've uh, I, I think I've been to all of them. Hmm. And it's been just absolutely uh, a great privilege, great opportunity to uh, travel with my family. Uh, to see the world and at the same time be involved in a sport that I love. And you've been involved in sport and in other sports as well before that. The Toronto Argonauts. I want to know about the Toronto Argonauts football team, soccer team. Yeah, yeah it's an American football team in Canada. And I've been involved in the, uh, the Toronto Blue Jays as well. Which is Did amazing. I get that wrong? So it's an American football. So is it, is it gridiron? Or yeah, is it Toronto soccer? Argonauts is oh, American football. See how close I've been paying attention yeah, to the fortunes. It's part of... Uh, it's called the Canadian Football League, which is uh, American football. Uh, I've also been involved with the uh, Toronto Blue Jays, which is major but Major League Baseball. Baseball, is about to say, uh, yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, I've had a very fortunate career, been in the right place at the right time a couple of uh, couple of times, and this certainly is another case for uh, for that here at the European Tour. Yeah, go Argonauts. Um, so how have things uh, changed? You'd say, you would say go Boltman. Go, yeah, yeah, go, go yeah, there. Or just Argos. Argos. You wouldn't right. say go Argonauts, so that's kind of embarrassing. How are the Argos doing this season, or has the season just started? The season is over, and unfortunately they didn't make the playoffs. Okay. Right. Uh, and I think what, what we've established in the opening minutes of this interview is that I know nothing about the Toronto Argonauts or Canadian no, American but, football. No, but then again, then again, you know, we came over, we came over to London, uh, and I, I couldn't believe how passionate... Uh, sports fans are about their football. You know, you're, you know, are you an Arsenal fan or you're a Leicester City fan? And Argonauts. Uh, yeah, and I'm, I'm just, it's incredible the passion of the of football, which is soccer, in uh, in my uh, my world. Well, part of your job, I imagine, then is taking what you've learned from other sports into golf. Even though you're a passionate golfer, you have learned things from outside the golfing realm. So I, I presume that's been key to the last three years and going forward. Well, I, I think I've had a very a great opportunity to be involved in not only sports but in the media uh, for the past 25 years, uh, running television, radio, publish, publications, uh, digital advertising networks. So uh, it has been uh, it's been a great a, a great career to date. But this was completely different. I've never worked in golf before. Never worked for a members organization where I basically work for the players. Uh, so it's been. Uh, it's been fantastic. I've really, really enjoyed it. I mean, one of the key aspects that we seem to see from your time at the top is that you have to stress that sport is, above all, entertainment. It's a product to, to be sold by various people, and among those people are the players themselves have to sell that product. Uh, there's no question the players are the recipe for success, undeniably. Um, but it is about entertainment because you're not following sport, you're not following... Anything that you do in your leisure time, unless you're being entertained. Uh, so, uh, uh, from my perspective, we are an entertainment company where golf is our platform. Just happen to be in the world of golf. But if we don't look at ourselves uh, from an entertainment side, then we're not going to increase the engagement, increase the people that are involved in our sport, involved in our tour, uh, and uh, 
you know, so that's where it starts. It starts with the, the culture, and the culture is definitely an entertainment company. And, and in changing that culture slightly and bringing in different formats, which there have been many, obviously, look at the Shot Clock Masters, the Belgian Knockout, or whatever it might be, the Super Sixes or yeah. the hero challenges that we've had, that you have to try different things. Well, I think you have to be prepared to, in any business that you're in at this particular time, you have to be prepared to modify yourself. You have to be looking at saying what is next. People are consuming content differently now. Uh, they're watching what they want, when they want, how they want. Uh, Short-form content is something that is really uh, is critical in today's age. Uh, so if you're not prepared to actually adapt, try things differently, and be afraid to make mistakes, as long as you make more right decisions than wrong decisions, you should be okay. But um, So we've, we've, we've tried some formats. We've tried a couple of different things. Some have worked, some haven't. Uh, but you're constantly trying to improve the product, and improving the product means increasing your engagement. And if we can increase our engagement, then then we're all winners. Because engagement at the end of the day is nothing more than a form of currency. And when we look at the key performance index for um, uh, metrics for for our particular business, it is about creating playing opportunities, prize fund and making our athletes stars. And in order to do that, we need to increase the engagement. And in order to increase the engagement, we need to be an entertaining company. Uh, and you have to be prepared to change. And change is not easy. Some people uh, embrace change, and others fight it. And what's very interesting is in, in a member's organization, everybody is at a different time of their life, whether it be an age, a different time in their golf career. You know, you might be a, a young up-and-comer, you might be an older journeyman, you might be a legend uh, in your twilight. And to, to change their thoughts holistically is very difficult because what might work for one person might not work for the other. And, and that's the greatest challenge that we have in the golfing world. I'm intrigued as to who the players are that have been... <laughs> You're not going to name names. have been resistant to change, and some who might have surprised you have been really, you know, embracing the change. Well, what what I found is that that the professional golfers, um, you know, are, are different than working and running teams uh, because they are individuals, and they've they've had to do so many things on their own, despite having managers. But they've had to make many decisions, and 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 it's a completely different athlete. I've also been. I'm very inclined to say that the golfers are incredibly passionate and bright and interested in what's happening with their tour because it directly affects them. So uh, have they embraced change? To be honest with you, more than I would have thought. But there has been some naysayers and there have been some, some, some people that want to keep it the way it always is. But that's like in any business. Any business that you're changing or any business that you're modifying, you'll get resistance. But if you don't continue to look to change, you're going to fall behind in this day and age very, very quickly. And there are great examples of it. Companies that, that, that didn't believe the Internet was going to be real, you know, didn't believe that, that you were going to be able to communicate with people like you do now, that you were going to be able to use this phone as, as a device that is that is not only commonplace, that is essential in all facets of your life. So it's, um, 
it is a changing world, and, and that is in any business, but certainly from a golf perspective, it has to change. And one of the ways that it's, that it's changing, you know, and one of the, the, the great innovative approaches from golf that has happened is Top Golf, which is adventure golf, where it, where the, it becomes the golf, the, the golf environment is, is a, a driving range, uh, but with restaurants and music and instant gratification with a computer right there and every ball has a chip in it. And it's being launched here in Dubai in 2019. And that will engage a younger, different audience to our game. And if somebody had talked about golf, uh, top golf, 10 or 15 years ago, and it was a purist, might not have seen the benefits. But I see the gargantuan benefits of a new, new format or a new way of engaging in our game, and that's top golf, and which is adventure golf. I mean, there are a lot of changes happening in golf. A lot of changes happening to the more conventional form of golf in terms of the scheduling next year. It's got to be a, a, a big, big change to the, the structure of things. Is that just something that the European Tour has to live with and adapt to, and are you happy with that going forward? Well, I think the schedule uh, changes when they came out and, and what the changes were for the live audience here that we're chatting with. Um, the, some of the, the major events in the U.S., switched and condensed the actual time frame where it made it very difficult for the European tour during a period uh, of, of March to uh, the beginning of the summer for us to have tournaments that were of the same size and magnitude of that in the U.S. based on the major championships which are you know the U.S. Open, the, the PGA Championship and Augusta and the Open championship which are the four majors in golf condensed uh, into a time frame so if in fact with three of the uh, four majors uh, in the U.S. it gave the U.S. tour a significant advantage and a leg up on the European tour so when you have those challenges you can choose to uh, you know hide and run away or you can look at it and say where are the opportunities for success? Where is the opportunity that we can be uh, the number one tour in the, in the world? Where are those places in the schedule? So we had to look at our schedule completely different. However, when we released our schedule of our main tour about um, 10 days ago, it's completely different than it was uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, but from a member's perspective and from an, from an opportunity for us to be successful, I think it is very strong. And when you look at, at the beginning of the year in the Middle East, we have, a, we have a tournament in Abu Dhabi, then in Dubai, and then in Saudi Arabia. We take a couple of break, a couple of weeks break, and then we have an event in Qatar, in Oman, and then our season, and then we give a little bit of a break for the, uh, the U.S. tour. And then at the end of the year... We come back a guns a blazing with uh, with the DP World Tour Championship, which is our uh, our ultimate event. There are always the two sides of it, though, because you, as the European Tour boss, are trying to organise the best schedule for the European Tour, and then the players, as you said, they're operating as individuals. They are trying to work out their best schedule. Mm-hmm. And Rory McIlroy this week, for example, has said that he might not be keeping up his European Tour membership because you know the the biggest names who you want to have in your tournaments, of course, how are driven by What's best for them to win the majors going forward? So that must have been frustrating to hear that this week. 
With Rory? Yeah. Well, Rory's a world-class player, and, and, and many of our top players are such. And, and the schedule has changed and has made them look at their schedule a little bit different. But then Rory at this, if, if Rory was here, I would imagine that he would say that currently he's not playing at the level that he would like to play at. And he feels that he has to try something different. Uh, that condensed uh, um, four majors yeah, really makes it difficult for him to play over here at that particular time. So he's going to concentrate on the U.S. in the short term. He will play over here again next year. How many he'll play, I think we've, we've talked about it, will still be determined. But then when you look at Rory, then you look at somebody like Alexander Scheffler, who is the 12th ranked player in the world, just joined the European Tour. And then you look at Bryson DeChambeau, who's number five in the world, has just joined the European Tour. And Patrick Reed uh, has, uh, is playing here this week, has rejoined again. So they're all global players. And at the end of the day, they want to be global athletes. You know, Rory is, is already firmly established as a global athlete. But I think his partners and all his stakeholders want him to play globally. And we're, we're, we're very convinced that, that Rory, regardless of how many times he plays this year, will play a lot in the coming years on the European Tour. The knock-on effect would be, though, if he didn't fulfill his membership criteria. You know, could things change in terms of the regulations to allow someone as big a name as that to still play in the Ryder Cup? Well, if, if he wasn't a member in the year of 2020 during the Ryder Cup year, no, he would not be able to play in the Ryder Cup. I don't see that being a, a, a possibility. I think Rory uh, will, will continue to evaluate his schedule, but I'm pretty confident that he will be eligible to play in the Ryder Cup in 2020. Let's finish on some uh, uh, happy Ryder Cup reflections because it's been a huge year. Whenever it's a Ryder Cup year, it's massive. And then for the European Tour, when Europe wins, it's even bigger. I mean, it's so important for the European Tour. Oh, it's it's an incredible, uh, incredible event. I was stunned, astonished, uh, the size and magnitude of it when I went to my very first Ryder Cup in 2016 as as, a... as the chief executive, as really a spectator in Hazeltine, I was so elated with everything that transpired in France. Uh, we had 270,000 people from 90 different countries over the, uh, the four or five days, which is incredible, uh, based on the fact that there are so few matches a day. So the, the opportunity for all the... Uh, the people to come together and 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 celebrate and it really does galvanizes uh, you know galvanize the entire continent um, and that's what Ryder Cup does it's it's one of the few times in our game where our sport becomes tribal where it becomes patriotic where you're playing for your your country or your continent and uh, it was it was magical there's there's no question we had a world class captain. Right. Oh, is, is Thomas here? <laughs> he might be here. Let's let's not uh, let's not uh, look too far into the video. There he is at the back of the room. Oh, actually, yes. Okay, we're going to no, be. Here. To be totally honest with you, Thomas, Thomas created an environment in that team room, uh, and I, I and if you are doing um, the interview with him, have him talk about 
the team room. Like, have them ask about the pictures, ask about what the, the theme was, uh, ask about the camaraderie. I've been around professional sports for so many years now, and the camaraderie and the environment that Thomas created uh, was truly legendary and was a massive factor of us um, being successful in France. Was it better than the Toronto Argonauts uh, thumping win over the Ottawa snowplows? Yeah. No, no, uh, I just made that team up. No, no, no. It was, it was, the Argonauts won the Grey Cup, the championship, by beating the BC Lions of course. in Ottawa yeah. in 2004. Oh, British Columbia. Oh, I yeah. hate them. Yeah, yeah that was very good. Uh, no, it was, it was uh, yeah, it was magical. Everything about uh, the Ryder Cup was, uh, was terrific. The first tee to have 10,000 people there uh, shouting. Uh, it, it, was, yeah, it was electrifying. And, and then and in 2022, because uh, every four years we operate the Ryder Cup uh, in Europe, it'll go to Rome. We're already talking about um, the Coliseum being the host of the uh, opening ceremony, us doing a, a couple of gala dinners inside the Vatican. Uh, the place we're playing is just uh, 11 miles from Rome. Uh, there is an incredible Waldorf Hilton there, which is, uh, is spectacular. Uh, and that's going to be the, uh, the key team hotel. Uh, so it's going to be great. I'm excited about it. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, a round of applause, please, for Keith Pelley. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you. Now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Thomas Bjorn to the stage. Hello, Thomas. Keith, the boss, told me what to ask you. Told me to ask you about the team room, but uh, we'll get to that in a moment. You are the first double guest on Life on Tour. You, we did a, an in-depth interview with you in uh, was it, it was Gothenburg, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it was, yeah. I think it was. You've done so it many interviews. It wasn't very memorable, obviously. It wasn't memorable <laughs> at all. No, for, for neither side. No, it was memorable. It was... Um, I mean, to say it's been a busy year for you is an understatement. Uh, how has the the year been? It's been uh, it's been interesting. It's been um, there's a lot of work that's gone into it. It's been one of those it's one of those projects that you set out in your mind and you, you don't really know what it is. I, I had a, a lot of indication indications of what the Ryder Cup captaincy would be like, but once you get into it and you start working working on it, you you realise it's it's much, much bigger than you could ever imagine. And the last three, four months was very hectic and when the team started shaping up. And so the year's been, been interesting. It's been hard work, but it, uh, it culminated in something pretty special. It was. I mean, let's go in-depth into events at Le Golf National. Actually, I was reading an article uh, the other day, which I can see you're raising your eyebrows in surprise already. Uh, but it was about the analysis that went into picking your, your wild cards, the data, because we saw, we were watching the likes of... Garcia or Stenson thing, well, Garcia's out of form. But then I was looking at this article and it was saying, actually, the analysis showed you, and now we can see it, that actually he wasn't too far away. It's just an example of the detail that's gone into for you to, to make your picks. Yeah, well, I think when you, when you make these decisions and, and picks, you look at, at so many different things uh, coming, coming into it. And, yeah, the the statistics of how they're playing and what they're doing on the golf course. Yeah, that's one part. And then there were so many other things for me that played into it. But once I sat down with 15's club and started going through Sergio's game and where he was, it actually showed quite clearly that he was 
doing everything you needed on that golf course. He was doing that quite well. He was driving it pretty straight. He was hitting quite a lot of fairways. He was hitting a lot of greens. He wasn't great around the greens, but um, on that golf course, that was very much a key for us to have good drivers of the golf ball. And when you look at the four picks, um, they're all great drivers of the, of the ball. And we needed, the, we needed that kind of player to play that golf course. So that played a big part. And then, you, you know, Sergio, for the one that got criticized the most leading into it, um, there's so many other things that he brings. But I, I always go over one thing with Sergio is that the European Ryder Cup team and the team room is what it is. And it's something that's very difficult to explain in words. But the one thing I always felt like, the best part of that week, he's always at the center of it. He's always the one that brings people together. He's fantastic with the experienced players. He's fantastic with the young players. He makes other people better around him. And also for a captain to kind of get a message through the team, he's the perfect vehicle for that. So when you have conversations with him, he kind of understands where you're coming from and then sends that through the team. So you have a player... Before the Ryder Cup, I said it's a bit like having a captain of a football team. You know, it's there's, there's the guy you turn to most. It's the guy you talk to, you have conversations with. He has a lot of experience, but he's also a very good communicator with the other players. So he just, he makes it work. And I will say, from the second I set foot in Paris, and I saw those 12 players getting together, I, I've never felt a team that was so much so determined and so focused on what they wanted to achieve and that made the captaincy very easy to guide them in a direction, the direction I wanted them to go. Um, so much comes down to the way they were. It, it, they were really fantastic, but he is at the center of it. But all those four picks were you know, very experienced and they all came to Paris almost with a point to prove and, and they came out of it... Uh, in a really good way, but it was um, it was pretty cool to watch from from the sidelines. Do you think there was any sort of sign of you know, hubris from the American side of things? Because we were we were all told that this is the greatest side since what eighty one Walton Heath. That it was such a great American side that that you and your players had, as you said, a point to prove not only as wild cards but as a, as a team saying, well, we're not too bad either. Yeah, but you know when I when I looked at it, I looked at the two teams and I. I mean, I, I haven't gone to a Ryder Cup and thought ever that the Americans didn't have a great team. You know, that's, you go in and always knowing that how strong they are and what, what they're capable as golfers. I looked at the team that we had, and I thought this was one of the strongest European teams I've ever seen. So we focused on what we had to do, and we never really talked, in, talked about the Americans. We never really looked at what they do and how they, how they try and achieve things. We... We very much looked at what we were, and so it was never. I never had any focus on Jim and his team. I knew how strong it was, and I never. I honestly really didn't really realize until Sunday in the singles when I started watching the twelve matches come down on the tee. I thought, when's a weak player going to come? And for some reason, in the in twelve, he never arrived. You know, it was a very strong team, but it kind of showed me where my focus was. I was focused. 100% on our 12 and not so much on, on what, they were, what they were doing and what they were capable of. Right, that's enough serious stuff. Let's talk about the team room. What, was, what did you have in the team room, first of all? There's always some sort of entertainment in the team room. What were the games? Uh, well, I mean, we, we built the team room up in a, you know, we were in a wonderful hotel in, uh, in, in Versailles and 
a Waldorf Astoria for, for some for some funny. Oh, fancy that! <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but we were in a wonderful hotel in in Paris, and you know our team room was was in a location where the Treaty of Versailles was brought after it was signed in the Chateau de Versailles. So it had a lot of history, and there was a lot of things that around the place that we were and the, the historic place we were in. So that was easy to bring Europeans together in a world of. We are in a historic place. We are in the history of, of what we are as Europe. And I felt like the presence of, of the Versailles and all this was something that the players really had looked forward to. We played there for so many years. And there was, there was a pride in these players when they walked into that hotel about Europe and, and to kind of guide them from there into trying to relax the mood and, and doing things that very much place it down. You've got to remember that these 12 players, and six of, six of them came from America from a pretty hard FedEx Cup. Uh, they came and they, they had played a lot of golf and a couple of them were dragging their feet and Justin came with a very thick wallet and thinking about his, his victory in the FedEx Cup. So there's a lot of things that they came with and, and, and when you go through a week like this, that's a long way from Monday, landing in Paris Monday morning and then till Friday when it all starts. And I think the way I surprised him a little bit was, I think they all had a kind of idea, well, he's going to just throw everything at us and he's got to be very much talking about the importance and of, of the Ryder Cup and what we need to do this week. And, and I, I felt like I wanted to kind of take a different direction with them in making it very calm and relaxed the first couple of days. Just I had only one request from them pretty much on all the way till Thursday, and that was that they got 18 holes in on Tuesday. So we knew the golf course and what we what we were talking about, but I, I wanted it to be very relaxed and I wanted them to recover. I wanted to, I had put a lot of emphasis on nutrition, the physios, the, the doctors that we had there, so they could all recover from a, a very hard uh, fought FedEx Cup and get themselves ready for Friday morning. So all the entertainment, you know, over the years we've had motivational speakers and we have had all sorts of things. And I, I've toiled with all the ideas, but in the end I thought, you know what, sometimes when you come from a position of being, of lost the last time, you've got to come in and just want to win this. It's not about who you bring into the room and what you do, it's about what those 12 want to do. And that was kind of the tone for the week was, no, we've got to achieve this. 12 players, captains together and go and, and try and win this. Um, so I brought in a few, I made some good videos made a lot of fun about them uh, the first night you know we we brought in this Irish impressionist, impressionist yeah. yeah that uh, that really took the mickey out of all of them uh, so there was nobody left out even I wasn't left out so it uh, it made it quite good fun and it set a good tone for the week and then Tuesday night I brought in I have two really good friends that were the best table tennis players in the world of their time it's very much a part of what we have at table tennis in the middle room, brought them in, had an exhibition with them on Tuesday night and that set the tone for it being relaxed and then we kind of built in and then I threw that big video in their face on, on Thursday evening and that was something that caught their attention. Go on, take us to Sunday night then. Who was the, who was the worst behaved player in the team room celebrating? Who celebrated most heavily in the team room afterwards or whatever it was you celebrated? 
And I think they all got very heavily involved. And, and I like that, heavily involved. <laughs> <laughs> deservedly so. You know, it, it had been a tough... It, any Ryder Cup for the players is a tough week. You know, it, it is, it's a great week to be a part of, but when you are in it, it, it really is a draining week. So they, they all get quite heavily involved. Win or lose on Sunday night, to be honest. So it was, um, it was a good night. It was, uh, but I think uh, the strongest memories is still from, from the days of play. Did you not promise that you would have a tattoo if you, if you won? Was that not? Did I imagine that? Why would I imagine that? That's weird. Um, did you not imagine? Do you not say that you, you'd have a tattoo if you won? Have, has this happened? Uh, it's not happened yet, but it is coming. Is it? <laughs> yeah, well, you make promises, you've got to stick to them. Um, I don't know, if, for the tone of this podcast, where, where would one get <laughs> such a tattoo? Yeah. I said at the time, it's only grace that we'll see where it is. Okay, we have... I've lowered the tone. Anyway, listen, uh, thank you very much. Actually, no, just before we go, I want to ask you what's next for you because a Ryder Cup captain puts his own golf kind of on hold. You tried to play a bit. um, But going forward, you said you'd, in our last chat of the podcast, said you would look at the Stayshore Tour, the Seniors Tour, and uh, and think about that. So you must be inspired by Westwood and what he's done. He's just a couple of years younger than you. Yeah, that was uh, that was pretty special last week. I thought um, it's nice to see that golf is still has this kind of span that you uh, you know once you once you've been a great player, it never really leaves you, and there's some great possibilities. And yeah, you got to pick and choose your places to play. You might not be able to compete in on all the venues that we play, but you can certainly compete on some of them. And I think for me, it, it was I dedicated all my time and all my work to this captaincy, but now I feel like I can start refocusing a bit on myself and you know the last two or three weeks have been really interesting for me in the way that I, I'm starting to you know the pieces are falling into place what I want to do it there's still a this is a few ifs and buts out there but I, I feel like I'm getting to a place where I'm first and foremost a golfer and I like playing the game I, I still love traveling I still love being a part of the tour so I'm slowly guiding myself in that direction that I'm going to give it another go and see where six, eight months of hard work is going to take me and see if I can get back to be competitive um, because the last three weeks, uh, as much as I enjoyed being on tour, I don't enjoy, you know, I don't enjoy being four over par after six holes. That's not, that's not who I am. So you've got to get, give yourself a chance to get back and also realize it's going to take time. Um, but I feel like that's why I'm right now. I, I want to get back to try and just play somewhat competitively. Excellent. Uh, anyway, listen, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much to Thomas Bjorn. All uh, right. Anyway, Thomas is off to the Waldorf Astoria's tattoo parlor. I didn't ask what tattoo he was going to get, just where it was going to be. But anyway, we look forward to news of that, or perhaps we don't. Anyway, uh, Lee Westwood has sneaked up onto the stage. Hello, Lee. Hello. Um, in a pretty good place. At yeah. the moment, because, uh, I mean, an incredible week. We saw the emotion of it last week, but yeah. uh, has it ebbed away now, or are you still sort yeah. of, have you still got that glow? I promise I won't cry tonight. Um, yeah, I'm obviously still elated by last week and feeding off those emotions and, uh, you know, hoping to carry that kind of form and, uh, and putting game into this week. Um, it's, a, it's a difficult balancing act, really, between, you know, using last week as a, kind of uh, as the momentum for, for this week and also calming yourself down and reassessing your, your goals and your focus for the, for the coming week because obviously, you know, last week was a big week and you need to 
settle down and get on an even keel and you know think very clearly about this week. Yeah, I mean, a big week, a big win. It's a big event now. You're the Rolex Series event. Your first win in one of those. But, but did you ever start to doubt? And people said, you know, since your previous European Tour win, what was that, April 2014? It's a long time. Did you start to doubt? I mean, you came close in Denmark, but there must have been the doubts. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm no spring chicken anymore. I'm, I'm 45 years of age, and you start to think, am I getting, you know, too old to compete with these young lads? And am I putting enough hard work in? Because, to be honest, I don't really practice that much anymore. Um, you know, I have other priorities, kids and different ventures and things like that. So the practice I do do is serious practice and I probably achieve more than just standing on the range, just having a chat most of the time. Um, you know, I get down to hitting balls properly. Um, and I do do hard work in the gym and I, and I work more on my mental, sort of, my mental side of the game now. So, you know, I, I still do a, you know, a little bit of work on that. But, um, yeah, you do start to doubt yourself. Um, you know, I've had a lot of chances recently and not finished it off. So that they all sort of snowball and uh, and you know knock your confidence. And but you've got to, as a golfer, you win very little. You know, I've played probably 700, 750 tournaments, maybe more, and won 43 times. So that's quite a low percentage. You get used to not winning. You get used to getting knocks and disappointments. So um, you have to look on the positive side of things and. Uh, and use those as, uh, as you know, inspiration. And, you know, I tried to do that and, um, you know, keep putting myself in contention and churning out good rounds. And all of a sudden I put four together and uh, on a golf course I love and I'm comfortable on and I get the win. Now, I'm not going to get all schmaltzy on you. It's not, uh, no. not what we do. <laughs> but, but if I'm American, I'd be saying so special for you to be there with Helen on the bag. Yeah. That's a, but how, how does that dynamic work? Because obviously you've had very, very good professional caddies throughout uh-huh. your career, but most recently Billy Foster, who's about as good as they get, but a very different dynamic. Not only does he not jump into your arms when you win, but he's a full-on caddy. How does it work with, with Helen? Um, she kind of brings a sort of a, a calmness to me on the golf course, a not-so-serious uh, side. Um, she doesn't know that much about golf. She know, she's got the basic understanding of it, but um, I hit a seven. It's just an example. I hit a seven iron into 17 last week, and it's probably in the top three shots I've ever hit in my career under the situation. And she looked at me and she went, that was pretty good. And, <laughs> and you know, she didn't even know we were in the lead. So... Um, that that is great for me to to be with somebody there that's just seeing it as it is really, rather than blowing it out of all proportion. You know, she she looks at it and, and she looks at me and she thinks he's playing golf for a living. You know, he's getting to do what he loves. It's it's she brings a, a not so serious element to it, which is great because you know I've been I've been battling it, uh, you know, like blowing it up out of all proportion and you know making winning tournaments mean everything and it doesn't really you know I get to go out and play golf there's more important things but you know that kind of takes the pressure off me but a lot of us would imagine that you know if we're in a partnership with someone wife spouse significant other special chum that when you're in a tense situation like that it's like being in a car those are where the arguments happen do you not does that not do you bicker on the course no not at all she's more likely to point out a nice flower on the ground or what we're having for dinner what we're going to have for dinner that night because you know carrying a golf bag around a golf course is, is hungry work you know it makes you hungry so you know we're more likely to talk about that and uh, than uh, you know which way I put brakes or which way the wind's blowing or something like that I like that right okay give us your Ryder Cup experiences because you were one of the vice assistant vice assistant captains yeah. um, 
I mean, it must have been difficult for you, great to be part of it, but also not quite part of it. Yeah, the first two days I found really tricky. Uh, you know, I felt like a bit of a spare part, to be honest. And, uh, um, you know, getting your head round, not playing is, um, when you play the last ten is, was, was tricky for me. But as the thing got closer, uh, as Friday got closer, you know, I started to enjoy it more. And Tom started to, you know, rely on us a little bit more and give us a few more responsibilities and jobs to do. And, uh, you know, once it sort of, got closer I started enjoying it and uh, and you know seeing and appreciating what we could do for the rest of the players it's no secret that you want to be a Ryder Cup captain yeah. lots of players do so do you start to look at oh this is the one that might be ideal for me do you still feel you get you know time as a player in the Ryder Cup um well I mean obviously last week's proved to me that I, I'm good enough to compete compete and uh, I'm pretty consistent and I can accumulate enough points to maybe play in the next Ryder Cup but you know, I'm not getting any any younger. Um, you know, to play in another Ryder Cup at the age of 47 would be even more special, I suppose, than the, the previous 10 I've played, uh, especially having missed the last one. Um, and obviously I've got a, an eye on being the Ryder Cup captain, probably, hopefully in four years' time when it's in um, Italy. Uh, you know, I'll be the right age then and I'll still be in touch with the players that are going to be in the team, but I'll have accumulated the knowledge and I've done the vice-captaincy. So, you know, I've kind of got... And I and I eye on each of those things, um, but it's difficult to let go of being in a player in the, in the Ryder Cup because it gives you such a buzz and such a thrill to, you know, represent Europe and try and win points for your teammates. Can you imagine doing the opening speech as a captain in the Colosseum in Italian? In Italian, yeah, exactly. So <laughs> four years to get ready for that. Just stand there and go like this, don't you? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> oh dear, twenty-fifth season on the European Tour for you know that. Yes, makes you feel old. But going back, it does. But it's, I mean, and it's gone very quickly. <laughs> flown by. Yeah. But tell us some of your favourite memories. I mean, obviously the very recent one. But going back, what what stands out for you? We were just talking back there about you know the first time I came to Dubai and it was for the Desert Classic in nineteen ninety-four and I stayed by the airport and. Literally, there was nothing between the airport and the Emirates Golf Club. Um, and, you know, this place has changed pretty quickly. And life on tours changed quickly as well. You know, we were playing for tournaments where the first prize was £33,000 back then. And uh, now we're playing, now, you know, last week I won £1.25 So, um, you know, over the years, it's all changed a lot. And I've had a lot of great experiences. You know, I've been fortunate enough to win the the money list a couple of times, once the money list, once the race to Dubai and, you know, play great in 2009 to nick it off Rory. Um, and, you know, all the, all the wins are very special, getting to world number one is very special. You know, all the Ryder Cups, win or lose, you know, I've got fond memories of. Um, there's just been so many great moments over the years. Can I ask a question that, I'll back away slightly as I ask it, but of your, Why are you moving away? Because you scared me slightly. <laughs> but, uh, of your efforts in the majors, is there one that you think, ah, that's the one? Because uh, that's why you moved. That's away. why I'm moving away, out of reach. There. Yeah, I mean, if I could, uh, if I could play a shot again, it would be on the last green at Turnbury um, uh, when Tom Watson and Stuart Sink played off. Um, you know, I thought I needed to hold the putt to get in the playoff with Tom. You know, he was in the middle of the fairway behind me. I thought he was going to make four, and I knocked it eight feet past and missed it coming back and missed out on the playoff by a shot. So, um, you know, you can't. there's no point in thinking about it too much, but, um, you know, that would be the one shot I'd play again. But, you know, I've had a few close calls in, uh, in major championships. You know, I could be sit, sitting here with three or four, but I didn't quite do the right things at the right time. 
Thanks for that, Andrew. Um, how hungry are you Moving to get back, back into... <laughs> well, you know, I mean, you're close to getting back into the Masters then. Now. And the Masters is a place yeah. where you have come very close, a place that you obviously love. Yeah, I've finished second there a couple of times and third a couple of times, I think. And, uh, you know, it's one of those special places. It's a little bit like uh, Sun City. You know, it's a golf course that once you... It took me a long time, but once you get the hang of it and, you know, understand the places to hit the golf ball... Um, you could, even if you're not playing well, you can see a way around it and you can compete that week. So um, I'd love to be back in the Masters. It's a special week. And, uh, you know, it's, it, if I, if I kind of put everything together, it's probably my favourite tournament. What a pleasant way to end, ladies and gentlemen, Lee Westwood. <laughs> Thank you. Anyway, listen, we've got our next star guest up, up on the stage. Shibankar Sharma, round of applause, please, for Shibankar. Thank you. Hello, so, uh, well, first appearance at the DP uh, World Tour Championship, but let's talk about your season first of all, because a great season, great right at the start of the season, well, at the end of last year, if that makes any sense, um, in Johannesburg, and then winning in Malaysia as well. I mean, you just leapt on the scene. That must have been fantastic for you. Yeah, it was. Uh, it's my first year on the European Tour, and, uh, you know, it has been amazing. Uh, I remember when I went to the Q School last year in Spain, I missed out on my card and I really wanted to get out here and play with, with the best players in the world. So uh, I got an opportunity in uh, Johannesburg and I led after the second round and I was lucky enough to win that tournament and uh, got a one-year exemption on, on tour. So I was really happy about that. And then to win again in Malaysia two months later was uh, again a dream come true. Just give us a bit about your background because golf in India is fascinating. Obviously a you know, kind of huge country, 1.3 billion people. But you, I'm thinking of you, uh, Anurban Lahiri, uh, SSP Charizia, they're not from, you know, really privileged backgrounds. How did you get into golf? So uh, my dad, he's sitting right there, he was in the Indian Army and most of the golf courses in India are owned uh, by the defense services. So I was lucky enough that wherever dad got posted, we weren't at a place for more than three years and wherever dad got posted, there was a golf course there. So I was just lucky enough to, you know... Uh, just start playing golf. Uh, was that golf. mostly in Bhopal when you, when you went to Bhopal? Yes, Bhopal was, uh, yeah, it was, it's, in, it's in the middle part of India. Um, and uh, that's where dad was posted. Uh, I think it was 2004 or five. Actually, I started before that, but four and five was when I actually got into golf, like really seriously. I really wanted to play golf. I met a professional golfer there who used to play on the Indian tour and he taught me um, how to hold the club and just, just the basics. And that's when I really got into it, started playing on the junior circuit after that. So is golf growing in popularity in India? Or is it, I mean, it's still a minority sport for a country that size, but how popular is golf? It's getting there. Uh, cricket, obviously, is the biggest sport in India, by far. It's a religion back home. And uh, I would say golf is really getting, uh, getting along now. Uh, we've had so many winners over the years. This year, we've had five Indian winners on, uh, on worldwide tours. And, uh, you know, that, that's really good for our country and for golf in India especially. Um, we, we're getting more coverage in newspapers, more golf courses opening up. Junior Tour is doing really well. We are producing new and new players every, every year. And, uh, you know, we are heading in the right direction. And uh, hopefully in the next coming years, we'll have more and more players on the Worldwide Tours. Were you a good cricketer? A lot of, a lot of good cricketers are good golfers. And uh, I'm just wondering if it goes the other way. Were you a decent cricketer? I was all right. I wasn't great. Batsman, <laughs> bowler? Bowler. All right. Bowler. Pace. So, pace, yeah. Okay. Yeah, pace bowler. But uh, I played when I was a kid, like every other kid back home in India. We all played cricket. So it was a lot of fun, but uh, just wanted to get into something more serious. I was a very serious kid. And, 
got into golf. Me and my dad actually started on the same day. No one in our family played golf. We just went to a golf course one day. Uh, dad got himself a set. He actually bought a car and he got a set as well. So <laughs> he got both and uh, he got me a cut down two iron and that's how we started. Okay. How old were you when you first beat him? Uh, we'll see if it's the truth. If he's going <laughs> to nod at this one. I think it was about 11 or 11 or 12 maybe oh, when oh. I first beat him. Yeah. Is that true? Roughly 11 or 12. Yeah. That's still remembers that painful day. Um, Listen, I mean, with your victories, then suddenly you reach an elevated status. You're well inside the top. You know, you get to well inside the top 100. You're playing in the WGC in Mexico. And a chance to, to meet some of the players who you've idolized as well. I, I want to know if this story is true. When you met Mickelson, when you met Phil Mickelson. Yep. Tell us about that. Yeah, so uh, uh, obviously after winning Malaysia is how I got into WGC uh, in Mexico. And uh, I remember when I got there on Monday, I was just starstruck being on the range with all of these players, Mickelson, Jordan Spieth, Justin Thomas, Dustin Johnson, all of these guys. And, uh, you know, I just got on the range and for, for the first 10 minutes, I just looked at everyone, their swings and how they were hitting it. And uh, I had a decent start to the event. I was leading after two days. And uh, I remember on the third day I was practicing, I had about an hour to my tee off. And uh, Phil was putting on the green. And uh, my, one of my good friends was caddying for me who went to college uh, in Arizona, which is the same for Phil. And he was wearing the Sun Devil hat. And he was like, let's go and say hi to him. Uh, you know, he's about to tee off. We'll just go and say hi. So I came on the green went up to him and was like, hi, Mr. Mickelson. Uh, and before I could say some, some more, he hit a few putts and you could just see it on his face that he was like in a zone. He just looked at me and he's like, not right now. I'll, I'll see you after the round. So he probably thought we were media or maybe oh. spectators who just jumped the rope. Yeah. And uh, that was pretty funny. But, uh, you know, he, he didn't really look at us. And after that, he just, he obviously understood that I was playing the event. So five seconds later, he came back. He's like, I'm so sorry. I was just not thinking and, you know, well played till now and have a good day. Yeah, he changed his tune like that, basically. That, welcome to our world. I've heard that not right now answer so many times. Uh, but you're in his league. But what about Tiger? Did you get a chance to... Were you too nervous to meet Tiger? You... I was in the start. I was. Uh, you know, everyone, uh, not only me, but so many kids back home in India have idolized Tiger growing up. And I was one of them just watching YouTube videos of him and just watching him play. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I was, I was nervous, definitely. Where was it you first saw him in the, in the flesh then? I saw him when he, he came to India for an exhibition tournament. I think that was four years ago. Uh, I think he was playing one of the events here in Dubai. And on his way back, he came to India for a day. And he played 18 holes and there were so many people. That's when I first saw him. He played at the Delhi Golf Club. But uh, this year, I think the first time we played in the same tournament would have been uh, probably the Memorial uh, or yeah probably the memorial uh, no actually the masters is when we actually played the first time and uh, even at the British Open I was on the range and he was hitting balls right behind me but I couldn't really go and say hi I was he was really in his zone I didn't want to disturb him oh, you, weren't, you weren't scarred by the Mickelson incident were you? <laughs> <laughs> no not, not really but I was just I was just nervous going and saying hi but uh, I met him I met him at the Bridgestone in August and uh, we spoke for about five minutes and he was really kind. So were you as excited as most golf fans when he won the, the Tour Championship in the United States? I mean, the crowds, the scenes there at the end were amazing. Yeah, I mean, we all knew it was going to happen. Uh, just the way he was playing, he came so close to winning uh, even at the British Open when he was leading and the PGA as well. So he was playing so well and we all knew it was going to happen eventually. And all of us were obviously very excited for him. Uh, he is... Definitely the top in the top three and the greatest players in the world of all time. So 
there was no doubt that he was going to win and I'm pretty sure he'll win a major too. It's interesting the way you talk, Shibanka. You talk uh, you know, very humbly and not as if you don't belong out there, but you talk as if these are your heroes, your idols, but you belong out there and I suppose you've got to, do you think you've got to develop a, a hard edge, a certain self-belief to, to compete at the very, very top in the majors? I know I have the self-belief, but uh, you know, as a person, this is how I am, so I'm not going to change that. Uh, I've just grown up this way uh, and uh, you know just for from being a kid to you know I, I remember last year I just dreamt of playing on the European tour I've seen it on TV for so many years and I really wanted to get on on tour and I was I, I remember I was heartbroken when I couldn't make my card at Q school but uh, yeah you know things changed really fast I won in South Africa I won in Malaysia and uh, that that what gave that's what gave me confidence that I have what it takes to win went out here on, on the big stage and then obviously I was leading in Mexico as well. So I definitely think I have the game. But as a person, I'm pretty, pretty much going to be the same. What are your aims and ambitions then? Having won twice in the European Tour, what is the sort of, do you set yourself goals, next steps in your career? Uh, winning is always tough. Like Lee just said before me, winning is always tough uh, in golf. But consistency is what I would look at for next year. This year has been great with two wins and uh, a few top tens, but uh, I would definitely want to play better than this year, next year. And, uh, you know, if I can get get a win or two, and even if I can get more and more top tens, uh, that'll just give me confidence and obviously my world ranking is going to uh, get up as well. Where do you live now? Where are you based? Still in India. I'm so from a town called Chandigarh, which is the same place as Jeev, who's, uh, who's a legend back home mm. in India. He's won five and times. And his father's a legend as well. His father's an even bigger legend. Yes, yeah. he has a movie on himself and, uh, yeah. Well, they're both legends. Yeah. Um, thank you very much indeed to Shabankar for joining us. Shabankar Sharma, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Shabankar. Cheers. Uh, it cannot uh, help but have uh, escaped your notice that Francesco Molinari has sneaked up onto the stage. So, a round of applause for Francesco. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, let's remind ourselves, a bit of an audio reminder of uh, Francesco Molinari and his great victory at Carnoustie. Rolls it forward, and in it goes. Listen to that roar. And the punch of the air from Francesco Molinari. What a performance. What a performance. Eight under par. And it is official. Francesco Molinari is the first Italian to win the Open Championship. This 147th Open at Carnoustie belongs to Francesco Molinari. Congratulations. And Phil Mickelson shakes the hand of Francesco Molinari. superstar of European golf as Frankie goes to Hollywood and seals the deal for Europe. Bedlam out here on the 16th tee. Oh, I said it was Carnoustie, but of course a little bit of the Ryder Cup in there. Uh, why not? The Open Championship. And we embarrassed you there a little bit, Francesco. You're quite a humble man. Um, but it must be a bit of a shiver to your spine as well, just looking back. I know you want to look forward as well, but looking back on this year, it's just been incredible. I'm actually looking forward to look back, if it makes sense, because I haven't had much time to sit down and really reflect on, on what's happened. So uh, that's obviously going to be easier from, from next week. But uh, yeah, great, great memories. Uh, I thought you were going to... I was going to hear your voice in the in the open commentary. It was a bit disappointing, but 
I'm probably not uh, big enough star for you. I know that. No, I, exactly. I. <laughs> that is true. I would say it's not, but it's true. No, I. I was out by that stage. Anyway, so listen. We played two clips there. Obviously, we played the Open Championship and the Ryder Cup. How do you evaluate the two? It's like deciding which of your children is your favourite. I mean, it's obviously it's the handsome one who's going to make you more money. But I mean, <laughs> which of those two do you hold more special memories of? You you can't compare them. Obviously, they're, they're very different. Uh, one is probably the best individual achievement you can you can hope to uh, to to get, and uh, the Ryder Cup is just so special. Uh, really, really impossible to compare. I think the the Ryder Cup is just a, a a different joy, a different satisfaction, and it's probably, if anything, bigger than than winning a major. Uh, just because because of the of the team environment because of you know Thomas was here before the the friendship you have with with those eleven players the vice captains the captain uh, it was just amazing and and I think Thomas did a, did a great job at you know creating the best team atmosphere I've, I've been a part of. Okay, well, come on to the Ryder Cup in a moment, but let's go to Carnoustie though because the the performance to win it looked and so often your golf does look. Unflustered and unruffled, <laughs> but the, the the adrenaline must have been flowing. But what you went yeah. bogey free for the final thirty-seven holes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, it's it's incredible to to think of it you know, on a course like Carnoustie. The Saturday, obviously, we got good weather and and uh, not much wind, and the course was softer, a little bit softer from the rain on Friday. So that that was obviously a great round but you you can see someone going bogey free on that day but then on the sunday obviously with the wind picking up and and being in contention uh, i don't know how how i did it but i was i was calm somehow that sunday uh i show up on in the morning and uh, i knew i had a chance i knew it wasn't going to be easy because there were almost every uh, top player in the world was up there with the with the chance, and uh, somehow uh, I was calm. Uh, I knew I was gonna do my my job, my own thing, and uh, it could have been enough. It could have not been enough, but you know that's that's all you can do in these in in those circumstances. You speak very calmly. You play very calmly. We uh, we like the idea of Italians. We think we think there are some of these incredibly outwardly passionate. People, there's some national stereotyping for you, but you yeah. know, we saw Constantino Rocca, and I don't know. Have you always been calm? No, no, not always. No, uh, I've been as a as a child, like as a as a probably ten, twelve years old. I was actually really <laughs> feisty, and and my dad did a great job at just you know stopping me from from the beginning. So. Were you a club thrower? Uh, yes, and breaker. Breaker. And, uh, everything, yeah. But any any stuff like that, it was, you know, tell me like three weeks without golf. And that was the, the worst punishment, obviously, he could, he could give me. So after a couple of times, I, I learned to, to contain my, <laughs> my rage. And yeah, probably my cat did it sitting there would, would disagree <laughs> completely <laughs> right Bale. now. But oh, there he is. Hello. Hello, Bale. How are you? Um, yeah, so is it just bubbling under the surface? Is that true? Has he got, has he got a temper, Peo? 
Yes, yes, <laughs> he says. Don't, don't say any more. Not say any more. But there is a darkness within. Good, I like that. Um, but yeah. having Eduardo as well, you know, two brothers who are so good at golf, growing up that must have been a big help because you're sort of competing against each other and, and, and with each other against uh, so many other juniors. Yeah, massive, massively important. I think even more coming from Italy, you know, there's not that many golfers uh, in Italy. So to, to have someone that is almost as good as you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's cold. Our That's next it. guest is Eduardo Molinari, ladies and gentlemen. No, so he was actually better than me. For he was sure. better, yeah. Yeah, thank you, thank you. <laughs> Mark, God, you said better. was, though. At least <laughs> you recognize the, the difference now. Uh, Actually, you, on that, well, let's, mu- let's, let's move on. No, well, you must, you must almost wish for success as much for him as you do for yourself, though. <laughs> yeah, I do as long as he's not competing against me. <laughs> Tremendous. I love sibling rivalry. Right, okay. Um, well, tell us about golf in Italy then, because Shibanka was talking about golf in India. It's still, as it is in so many countries, still, you know, a sort of a, a more niche sport. But is it, is it gathering pace in Italy? I mean, we're looking forward to the Ryder Cup there. Yeah, it is. It is, and... Uh... I think obviously this year, my year this year with the with the results has been important. Like it was, you know, maybe around 2010-11 when both Eduardo and I went on the Ryder Cup team and Matteo started winning on tour. And uh, you need you need those moments to to get the the public watching golf on TV. Uh, and then obviously there's a big excitement about the Ryder Cup coming in 2022. So. Uh, it is it is moving. I think Italy is always going to be football first, but you know there is a lot of sports fun and there is room behind football for for other sports. Did you get on the front page of Gazzetta dello Sport? Did you? I did. Yeah, that's for big the, news for the Open and for the Ryder Cup. So that that shows you that it's it's changing. Uh, or it shows how badly the Italian national team is playing. One of one of those things. I don't know. <laughs> I think both both. Yeah. Yeah, I'm Scottish, I can't really comment on that. So anyways, well, let's talk Ryder Cup then, because it was, as you said, so, so special. When you got to that course, or when you knew how it was being set up, did you just feel confident, not just because of the way you were playing, but that course is kind of tailor-made for your accuracy, the way you play? Yeah, it's a course that I love. It's always been one of my favourite courses on tour since since I got on tour. Uh, but yeah, you never know, obviously... Many of the guys, of, of the American guys, hadn't played it before, so you, you don't really know what to expect. You know, they, they might love it as well, and they play, they might play their, their best golf. And uh, so there was confidence, but there was also the the awareness that you know it was going to be tough to to beat them. Uh, but then, yeah, obviously, I, I learned that I was playing with Tommy, and, and I saw he was playing brilliantly as well, and. Uh, I think both of our games are, are perfectly suited to the cause. Well, when did you learn that you're going to play with him? Because I have in uh, my research that you and Tommy plotted your partnership together while on holiday, or was it just mentioned? What was this? When was no, this? No, he actually started well before. He started earlier in the season when, obviously, Tommy had a, had a very strong start of the season, so he was always looking like he, he was going to make the team and. I started uh, texting him saying, you know, I want, I want to play with you in France. Why? Why? Why him? Because he's playing really well and you want the points. Why? No, no. Just your personalities go together? Yeah, just because we, we're friends, you know, we, we know each other well and uh, we, we enjoy spending time together on and off the course and 
uh, obviously I, I knew how how good a player he is and and how well he could play on on that golf course and I just thought we we would be the perfect pairing yeah so from texting each other to bring up the suggestion then do you sort of plant that seed in Thomas Thomas's head yes well then he because he suggested you know you're going to be the senior <laughs> guy in the in the partnership so you need to to bring the idea up to Thomas and I was like okay yeah, I can well, do that what benefits does the senior partner get in the partnership? Well, you don't want to get into that. <laughs> okay. No, oh. uh, yeah, so we, we spoke with Thomas, but I think he, he had pretty much the, the same idea. So it wasn't a big surprise for him. And uh, then we went on holiday together in the summer and, you know, kept talking about it. So there was a long build-up to, to that week. Where were you on holiday together in the summer? We were in Bahamas with the families, not only the two of us. All right. <laughs> I was about to say, just said to your, honeymoon. Said to your wives, uh, I'm off on holiday with Tommy. Yeah. Hope that's okay. Perfectly normal. Right, anyways. <laughs> well, tell us again about the, uh, the Ryder Cup. So as you are going through and winning, I presume you're just feeling as, as confident as can be, but tell us about the sort of Ryder Cup atmosphere and experience. Are you feeding off the crowd there as well? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I have to say that the crowds in, in France were really spectacular. Uh, I guess, you know, being the first Ryder Cup in France, we, we didn't really know what to expect. We didn't know if the chanting was going to be there like it was in Wales, maybe, or in Scotland. And uh, But, yeah, obviously, the, the first day that stand was massive, incredibly big and... and you knew, you know, from, from the first morning, really, that the atmosphere was going to be something special. And for it to come down, ultimately, to, well, to Mickelson's tee shot, but your win over Mickelson in the, in the singles, the atmosphere at the end of a Ryder Cup is always extraordinary, but take us through those moments. It's, uh, it all gets a bit mad. Yeah, yeah. Just a bit of chaos, really, and uh, probably not my smartest move to jump in the crowd like I did. <laughs> Uh, and really struggling to to get out of it, but luckily John Ram was pulling me, so he's he's big enough to <laughs> to get me out of there. And uh, it's just yeah, an, an amazing joy, you know, to to share. Unfortunately, in golf, we obviously we got the caddies out there with us, and we share the the pain and the satisfaction with them. But to do it with with other players is something we we nearly never get the chance to do. So. It is really, really special. How was the night? Because Thomas was up here earlier. I don't know if you were here. I can't remember what the phrase he used was for those who, who drank heavily. The, <laughs> something about indulging, perhaps. But anyway, was it a good... Well, obviously, it was a good night. But uh, who, was the, uh, who was the liveliest player of the night? <laughs> uh, I have to say Justin Rose. No. Yeah. No one here believes that, really? Number one in the world, and, and uh, not only in playing golf, probably... But no, it was it was it was great fun, and uh, we all, you know, it, it is a, a fun week, but it is also a lot of pressure and a lot of tension, and you need to release it at some point. And the party is the perfect occasion. Justin Rose, look out for the quiet ones. That's <laughs> um, so I, I mean, going forwards, it's it's interesting since the Ryder Cup. Obviously, I mean, it goes back. Your season has been successful, but. Long and successful. I mean, winning at Wentworth, winning the Open, doing five out of five at the Ryder Cup, it takes its toll. And you have been a little bit tired since then. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think the 
after the open, I had kind of a, of a dip, as, as you know, it's physiological and, and normal, and uh, I managed to pull myself together in time for the for the Ryder Cup, and then there was another another dip after that, and, and you know, it is what it is. I think it's it's a lot of things that's been happening to me in a very short period of time, so I need to. I need to learn how how to deal with that, and I need to adapt if I want to keep having that sort of success and and just move forward. Well, you're in prime position this week to take the overall um, race to Dubai title. I mean, what what would that mean? Obviously, it, it's a sort of justification, vindication for the success you've had this year. But it would be a huge honour. Yeah, it would be. It would be definitely. And you know, it's it's. I think it's it's so hard to do because obviously you can win any tournament you know you can have the perfect week and, and beat the other guys and it's it's four days of golf but to win a season long race with the with the amount of talent that there is on the on the European tour at the moment it would be something that I, I wouldn't wouldn't have believed to be honest at the at the beginning of the season. So I'll do I'll do my best to to, to try and win it this week. Obviously Tommy is gonna try and, and give me a, a hard time and uh, is is obviously talented enough to to win this week, so I need to go out and and do my job. I love the way that your teammates suddenly become fierce rivals. I mean, if you were playing in the same group with with Tommy when it came down to it, oh, you'd hate each other, wouldn't you? <laughs> no, I don't. I don't think so. You, you know, it's we've been friends, luckily, for for a few years now. And uh, you know, if he, if he was to win this week and and win everything, obviously he would be the the ser- deserving winner. So, uh, you know, Sunday night we will have a drink together anyway, and uh, then off to the Bahamas together. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe I think he's playing Hong Kong, so okay. probably not. Anyway, listen. So just going forward, uh, winner of a major championship now, great success in the Ryder Cup, but your success has been building and built upon solid principles. So. I know Dennis Pugh is he was here was he where's Dennis there he is hi Dennis uh, one of your coaching team is here so I presume you and he and everyone else will be thinking about going forward and and, and winning more yeah obviously we we can't wait for that but uh, I think we we're all aware of you know how much it takes to to get to that sort of of level and and uh, you know like you were saying before it takes a lot out of you and uh, it's been a long season so. I think first of all we need all to have uh, uh, a little time off and probably without seeing each other because we've seen a lot of each other recently and and then we will start again and, and try to, to find ways to to get better like we've always had. Right, our final guest and our, I say our star guest of the evening, whisper quietly because some of the others are still here, but uh, our Open champion, our Ryder Cup superhero, Francesco Molinari, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Francesco. Thank you to, uh, to Keith Pelly, Thomas Bjorn, Lee Westwood, Shibanka Sharma, Francesco Molinari, of course. Another reminder, Series 1 of Life on Tour. This is the end of all of it. Go back and listen to some of the interviews. Subscribe and listen now on Acast and Apple Podcasts. I'm Andrew Carter. This has been Life on Tour, and we're all off to the bar where Justin Rose is buying the drinks, apparently. Thank you very much indeed. Good night. to the Life on Tour podcast presented by Hilton. You can get in touch via Twitter and Instagram at European Tour using the hashtag Life on Tour or on Facebook. Subscribe now and if you enjoyed the show, feel free to rate and review us on iTunes and Apple Podcasts.